0: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California, and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land.
0: You're listening to The Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to The Rock Art Podcast, episode 38 with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and myself, Chris Webster. Today we talk about bighorn sheep and representation in rock art and relationship to shamanism. All right. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am back with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I got it right this time. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Professor Chris Webster, God bless you.
1: It's always, it's always wonderful. I always say, where in the world is Chris Webster? Every time I talk to him, he's somewhere else, somewhere in, in the continental plain, as it were. He's been uh, traveling, right. haven't you, for quite a while. Uh, quite some time now, yeah. And he always asked me such uh, incisive and uh, deep, deeply theoretical <laughs> or perspectivized questions. And we have a great time. And I've heard, I've had, I've had a tremendous amount of feedback from various people, you know, throughout the many months we've been doing this and they just love this podcast.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, that's good to hear. So
1: we're, we're keeping it up. No, I mean, I've heard from this person and that person. One person says, I listen to every podcast you've ever done, Alan. <laughs> I know you well.
0: Nice. Nice. All right. Well, As we often do, you and I were actually having a chat about something else entirely before we started the show. And it actually made me think of something that was hearkening back to a previous episode when we were talking about archaeoastronomy. And Mm -hmm. we mentioned the dating of rock art as related to astronomical events like the supernova pictograph down in Chaco Canyon and right, other right. astronomical events that like, we know the actual date of the supernova that happened because it was documented, well-documented around the world. The Chinese at that time, I mean, had a fully, you know, a, a full civilization with writing and everything, obviously at that time. And they documented the yes. exact date that that happened. Well, it made me think we mm-hmm. were talking about, Doing excavations here in well the Great Basin in Nevada and also the Pacific Northwest. And there's a layer, uh, a layer that defines a moment in time that is pretty distinctive across the entire Pacific Northwest. And it's called the Mazama Ash Layer. And Mazama was the name of the volcano that blew up and basically made Crater Lake, Oregon. And, you know, the the whole thing blew up. That
1: that is correct. Yeah,
0: the whole thing exploded. It was this huge thing, blew the mountain apart. And now we're left with a huge, beautiful lake that's crater-like Oregon. But what it did was it blanketed the whole Northwest with ash. And that was, what, 6,000 years ago, give or take? It's, so it's
1: been dated now a couple of different ways. One, One was through a whole series of radiocarbon dates. But another way was, believe it or not, they have found evidence for the Mount Mazama ash explosion, as it's called, in mm-hmm. Iceland. So they use oh. ice cores to date it very specifically to something on the order of, I believe it's 7,600 years ago. Okay. Yes. So, 7650. 7650-
0: yeah. So that that might be a little early for some of the rock art expressions in the Great Basin and the Pacific Northwest. I mean, not too early, but my question was, we talked about astronomical things being displayed and commented on in rock art and, and, you know, depicted in rock art, I guess is the right word. But do you know of any expressions of the Mazama explosion in rock art? Have you heard of anything like that or is that just too early?
1: No, I mean, I don't. It's not too early, but I, I don't. There is an article, you know, of course, something related to rock art, it's always interesting, Mm -hmm. that was published in the Journal of California and Great Basin Anthropology by a woman who is a geologist or geophysicist. And she believed that rock art in certain places of the Great Basin are related to earthquakes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right? Yeah. And... And she, she showed the actual imagery of those quakes. But on top of that, she was able to find that when she measured the actual electromagnetism of certain panels, they displayed an aberrant manifestation that was not conventional. It, it was off the charts, hmm. upside down and backwards forwards. And so that these particular panels or rocks sort of captured some some sort of change in the Earth's crust its Earth's magnetism what have you that may have been a function of some sort of earthquake or the other thing that I talked about was that these particular rocks at various times these panels may have been the locations for lightning strikes) <laughs> Hmm. So either lightning or earthquakes, these these dramatic natural environmental factors may have a play or causation or influence on rock art imagery.
0: You know, I was thinking, too, the actual explosion would not have been witnessed by a large set of the population in that area, right? Only the people within, I don't know, what, 50, maybe 100 miles would have actually seen some sort of plume, maybe even heard the explosion, maybe a little further away. But when you're talking about the context of the entire Pacific Northwest and the Great Basin in Northern California, I would imagine if we looked through rock art through the ages and tried to correlate known dates that are that have been dated to rock art panels in other means, if we were to correlate those with massive ash plumes that like blanketed ash on the area to see if we could find some common... Symbology, so to speak, to because they would may not have yeah. known where it came from, but they would have sensed you know something was going crazy if the whole air place is blanketed in gray ash. That would have been interesting to see if that was you know depicted in rock art because it would have been somewhat of a traumatic event even if they didn't see the explosion.
1: No, exactly, and that's an in- an interesting hypothesis, Professor Webster. And it would be interesting to. <laughs> sort of begin to sort yeah. of understand what the test what the test implications might be, et cetera, et cetera. Along those same lines, it it's begun to sort of gnaw at me over the course of the last, I don't know, six months or a year, even a year and a half, that mm-hmm. when we look at COSO rock art in Eastern California, COSO meaning steam or fire, and this volcanic area that has tremendous geothermal energy upwelling right. and has a, a pond with 200 degree fahrenheit water in it bubbling up and and f- fumaroles that are escaping that appear a bit like your hell on earth mm-hmm. smelling with the sulfurous way that maybe this cosmological this natural sort of upwelling of the fire the divine fire within the earth may have had an effect on the cosmology and the worldview of those people who decided to reside there. So for instance, yeah. besides volcano peak in the Coso range, you're aware there is a cinder cone right next to highway 395 and north of little Lake called red hill. Mm-hmm. Well, red hill has been dated precisely dated to as young as 10,000 years ago. So what that means is that we've found evidence of indigenous occupation considerably earlier than that, about 12,800 years ago. And so the people living there saw that Red Hill Cinder Cone formed on the landscape with their own very eyes. First, firsthand, wow. and you can imagine the kind of impression or impact that might make, such as, such as like with Parakutan, which was a volcano that came out of nowhere on the landscape and was created in front of a farmer over the course of maybe a three to six-month time period, and it grew to, you know, several thousand
0: feet tall. Mm-hmm. Wow, there you go. All right. Well, if anybody listening to this is a rock art researcher or enthusiast, I would love to know if there's a correlation. in. in I, I would imagine it's regionally, but I don't know. Maybe maybe it would be human nature to depict an ash cloud or ash deposits on the ground in a similar way. I, I, I don't know if different peoples would depict it the same way on rock art, but if there's any commonalities, that would be... That would be real interesting, any commonalities around the world, because lots of people have lived near volcanoes close enough to where they didn't know that it was a volcano necessarily, but they knew the effects of the volcano, right? They knew the ash deposit and so forth. But I would imagine prehistoric peoples, I mean, they probably knew about volcanoes, even if they didn't see this particular explosion. You know, it was a geologically more active period than here today, especially when Mazama blew. So they probably knew all about volcanoes. Most people did.
1: Well, think about think about all those episodes of volcanism that happened in Eastern California in the Inyo-Mono region. And there was many mm-hmm. tephra layers that exists all over that area of Long Valley and the Owens Valley and the, the Mono yeah. Basin there. So they were watching all these various episodes of ash and volcanism occurring right before their very eyes.
0: Right. Wow. Okay. Well, let's shift gears then to our topic for the day because <laughs> I just, I had to get that off my mind because it was really making me think when we Please. were uh, just starting this episode. Oh, no, I think that's yeah, fascinating. but fascinating. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about bighorn sheep. We talked about bighorn sheep a lot on this show because they factor prominently in the rock art of the Kosos, obviously, and rock art of the of the Eastern Mojave and, you know, like Southern, I would say Great Basin, Nevada area. So let's talk about bighorn sheep. What do you, where do you want to start with that?
1: I think, well, I think the bighorn uh, is featured as a hallmark image throughout the far West. So in other words, even in the American Southwest, Colorado, even in Utah and Nevada, and Eastern California and Eastern Mojave Desert, certainly into Mexico and the peninsula of Mexico in Baja, California, you see a, a focus, a primal focus, if you will, on the depiction of bighorn sheep. So I mm-hmm. think initially we, we wonder why that could be because we don't see that same emphasis or equivalent manifestation for all the other kinds of animals that were hunted or that were living or that were eaten, you know, as a subsistence focus in those areas. You don't see it for deer. You don't see it for antelope. You don't see it for the bear. You don't see it for wild goats per se, but you do see it wherever and whenever bighorn sheep exist, they are depicted on rock art. Why is that? Right. Uh, Our our colleague, uh, Chris Webster, (laughs) why would they have such a obsession with this animal? And what does that have to do with the study of rock art or the theoretical underpinnings of the origin, cause, and explanation for rock art? Well, it really has a lot to do with it.
0: Yeah, the bighorn sheep today, like even even when I'm driving down, down 95, down near Walker Lake, and I know for a fact there's a herd of bighorn sheep that inhabit that area because I've seen them cross the road. And it was a herd of probably, I don't know, eight to 10 of them when I saw them cross the road. And they're just so... I don't know, fascinating. It makes me wonder if, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago, if they weren't more populous, like a lot of animals were, and they've just been, you know, their territory areas have gotten smaller. They've probably been hunted a lot more these days. So I don't know what the population is like now versus hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. But I would imagine the bighorn sheep is such a, a different animal than you see on the rest of the landscape, you know, that it would have been, it would have been something that Native Americans recognized as special in some way, shape, or form. And I mean, their ability to just climb mountains and almost defy gravity and do all the things that they do would have practically seemed magical. It seems magical to me. I don't know how they do it.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So one of the reasons I bring up bighorn sheep almost as an antithesis to, I'd say, the most prominent platform, explanatory platform for trying to understand rock art is... Sometimes mm-hmm. it's the straw man directly opposing to what we call the shamanistic platform or the, what else would you call this, you know, sort of a the neuropsychological, the neuropharmacological platform mm-hmm. for understanding rock art. Typically, when we began the study of rock art, people initially saw these animals depicted and they said, oh, of course, it's hunting magic or some sort of way to hunt animals and, and portray them as you think something, so it is. And mm-hmm. through time, this hunting magic formulaic explanation, one of the earliest explanations, came in for some tremendous critiques. It probably developed in the old world in Europe. And as they began to excavate sites, they found that the The economic animal bones that were found in these sites had almost nothing to do with the animals that were depicted in the imagery on rock art. So the argument went that if they were the targets for hunting, then they should have some reflection in the archaeological deposits, and they didn't. So they were curious about that. Same thing happened when, when they started examining the animals that were eaten and most prominently eaten or subject mm-hmm. to hunting in, in the Great Basin in the American Southwest. Wherever we looked, there seemed to be not a clear reflection or dominance or centrality as we see in the imagery in the middens, in the economic fauna, the zoological component of archaeological sites. So. This brought in a whole other way of thinking about rock art. And
0: mm-hmm. one
1: of those critiques was that the bighorn sheep imagery had nothing to do with hunting and everything to do with its metaphorical meaning and the imagery associated with shamanism. So, as, and we haven't really talked that much about shamanism, which is amazing. What, which, which, what episode is this? Number what? 38. So we've had 38 hours and almost no discussion of shamanism, which is absolutely amazing because the whole shamanistic platform, the whole basis for rock art that most researchers or many researchers believe is embedded or fostered by the oldest religion, which is a mm-hmm. combination of animism and shamanism. And the more we've studied shamanism now worldwide, we've come to know that shamans, these medicine persons who somehow through various means captured an altered state of consciousness and Mm -hmm. see these visions and produce these images, that this may be more of a metaphorical kind of an image rather than simply uh, a natural or conventional Understanding.
0: Okay, well, that is a great place to take our first break. So let's do that and come back on the other side. And I imagine we're going to talk about shamanism and some other stuff. I definitely have a question to start it off with. So let's do that in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code ROCKART. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleo Radiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and core structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P A L E O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Welcome back to episode 38 of the Rock Art Podcast, and we are talking about bighorn sheep, and we just started talking about shamanism, but I, I wanted to mention, man, it is interesting. I don't want to gloss over the fact that one of the ways that we know bighorn sheep were more related to religion, ritual, shamanism, and things like that is that we just don't find a lot of evidence of bighorn sheep in the hearths and and hunting related activities for Native Americans, right? For prehistoric peoples of the area. That is just an awesome synergy of, you know, one looking at one thing and saying, well, we don't find them here, but we find them over here. What does that mean? Because it's a, it's a well-known joke in archeology span that if archeologists don't understand something, it's ritual. (laughs) So if, if we don't know what it means, it's magic or it's ritual or something or it's religion because you can't explain religion.
1: (laughs) So the way this goes is if you want to find bighorn sheep bones, you've got to go where the bighorn sheep are, where they live and where they were butchered. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is, is bighorn sheep live mainly up in the higher elevations of the mountains. And so there's a a thing called the schlep effect. And that is, if you're hunting bighorn (laughs) sheep, the last thing you want to do is schlep that entire carcass back to your home base because <laughs> it's so damn heavy. Now, that's right. When they worked up in the White Mountains, in the high elevation White Mountains, they found lots and lots and lots of bighorn sheep bone. Now they were all pounded up, yeah. to be, you know to be, to beat the band into little bitty pieces, but they found tons and tons and tons of bighorn sheep bone. They were the most prominent bones in all the hearths. And they found them there for actually hundreds, thousands of years over time. So Mm -hmm. that the bighorn sheep is not prominent in the Har's and the lower elevations are part of the story. But the other part of the story is when you're hunting bighorn sheep and you're a hunter-gatherer, if you can bag a single sheep or even a couple of sheep each year, you're doing great. When they've done studies ethnologically, from of how many deer mm-hmm. or how many bighorn sheep a particular family brings home, it's about two <laughs> on an annual basis. <laughs> so, so you get a lot of meat, and this and for the most part, the animals that they're eating are small game animals. They're trapping; they're mm-hmm. they're also getting. Uh, avian fauna or jackrabbits, which can be hunted communally. But the smaller game animals would be more of the mainstay. But if you looked at the calories and the component of the meat portion of the diet, some of the bigger game animals occasionally would bolster this and would have a a huge impact in the uh, vitality and the kilocalories of these human beings. And they love it because it's juicy and it tastes good. Lamb chops.
0: Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. And is there as much representation of bighorn sheep in rock art at high elevation rock art sites where these bighorn sheep were more commonly hunted versus lower elevation where you didn't see the bighorn sheep very often, but they're very prominent in those rock art sites? I'm just wondering if there's less representation of the bighorn sheep because they were more common in your everyday life and and maybe not as, you know, mystical, so to speak.
1: You know, I've thought about that question often. So is it that when you find great amounts of rock art that depict bighorn sheep, is that the area correlated with greater numbers of sheep or higher elevations? And the answer, I think, is no. Hmm. The largest depictions of bighorn sheep in the world are located in Baja, California, in the Sierra de San Francisco. And these are depictions that are larger than life in enormous panels that are depicted all over these rock shelters. Okay. And it's they're very, very few and there's very thinly populated. The same thing goes for the Kosos. And I spent Many, many years trying to answer this question, and that was in the area where we find the greatest concentration of prehistoric rock art, let's say 25 to 50% of it depicts bighorn sheep in about 100 Mm -hmm. square miles, and maybe there's 25,000 to 50,000 images of bighorn sheep. How many bighorn sheep were there in the Coso Range? The Coso Range is one of the worst places for sheep. And I heard this from wildlife biologists. First of all, it has very poor escape terrain, which they need. It's got poor forage. And it's one of the driest places in the entire California desert. It only gets Mm -hmm. about three inches of rain each year. It's about two valley systems over from Death Valley. Right. The numbers of sheep that existed in the Coso range were on the order of maybe 100 to 200 sheep at most. Wow. And that's in good times.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's dramatically different. Where there's lots of sheep, there isn't that much rock art depicting sheep <laughs> <laughs> in the higher elevations. Yeah. And, and why would that be? I mean, I, 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 maybe there's an inverse psychology here. Maybe the production of sheep on the rocks is a visual shorthand. It's a prayer for their continued vitality and the ability to harvest them successfully.
0: That's what I think. hmm yeah, and maybe does that make any sense? It does make sense and you know, we also can't assume that the people who are living down at the lower elevations in the Kosos and the people who are living at the higher elevations in that area, like in the White Mountains, we can't necessarily assume they're different people, right? I mean, people migrate, people move. No, they weren't necessarily no. sedentary, you know? So.
1: No. And we do know if we reconstructed their languages, that they were the same people, at least related linguistically. Yeah. They were a uto aztecan numic or pre-numic ancestral numic people living there and living a very similar, if not virtually identical, pattern of prehistoric Mm -hmm. population movements, upland hunting of the big game, lowland villages, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So when we're talking about people in the spring living down in the lowland areas, uh, when there's not very many bighorn sheep, they're doing other things to them. This does lend credence to the idea of hunting magic, because people ask, how do you how would you even know that? How would you even know that they're they're trying to, you know, bring them around by hunting? But maybe they're doing it to have a prosperous summer when they go up to the highlands. I think I said spring they're in the lowlands, but usually they'd be up higher, obviously, right, in the summertime right. and lower in the wintertime because in the higher elevations in the wintertime, they're covered in snow. So maybe they're just trying to make for a prosperous a prosperous summer coming up when they're having a lean winter, you know?
1: And in, and, and the bighorn sheep have a fall rutting season. And when they rut, they, they create, they, hmm. they have their females, the ewes, and the lambs, and the rams, it's the only time that they coalesce or are concentrated. And that's the time mm-hmm. that they, have, they, they also are concentrated during this fall season, they connect and get together and also, you know, are, are available to be hunted in a concentrated group instead of being dispersed over the landscape. So in some ways the fall might be a time that would be especially productive for uh, successful hunting. Hmm. Okay. So that's something to think about as well.
0: I think because we're, we are having a few audio challenges on this segment, let's call that right there and come back on the other side of this, continue our discussion about bighorn sheep with Dr. Alan Garfinkel back in a minute. Oh, oh, oh,
1: O'Reilly. You need parts. O'Reilly auto parts has parts.
0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right, welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 38, our third and final segment. And we are talking about bighorn sheep and their depiction in rock art. And we were just starting to lead really into a solid discussion of... I I think religion and, and really shamanism. So, yeah. And and we, yeah, and we mentioned it in a previous segment too. So let's get into that. So
1: right now, those that are sort of insiders or rock art scholars, students of rock art are pretty firmly convinced that much of rock art throughout the world, in fact, was uh, a function of caused by, written by, crafted by, People we might call shamans. Now, the shamanistic platform has been seen as almost a, a counter or anomalous or paradoxical to the companion platform discussing rock art as hunting magic or increase rights or uh, understanding it in a variety of other ways, whether it's uh, sacred narrative or discussion of the mythology, what have you. And so this shamanistic platform was really put to the test and been very, very critically incised or criticized for much of the information that was gleaned from it. And it's taken a lot of hits. It's gone on for decades. And I think finally, people have come to the conclusion that there's something to this shamanism thing that indigenous people all over the world used a variety of means to obtain altered states of consciousness and that shamanism is actually a ubiquitous, a very popular means throughout the world of connecting to the world of the supernatural and people becoming effective healers and therapists for Native kind, for the Native people. Mm -hmm. And even to this day now, scientists are studying the various uses of these psychotropic plants and other means of gleaning altered states of consciousness. And by doing so, they find that people who are troubled who have either diseases or have psychological impairments are tremendously benefited by the use of these various substances to introspectively connect with their creator with a higher power. Does, that, does any of that make any sense?
0: Yeah. It's almost like nothing's changed, right? Like people still do that.
1: <laughs> they do, but they were doing it more on an entertainment level But there are some that are spirit seekers or seeking some sort of revelatory experience. Mm -hmm. And what they find is once they begin to get involved in this kind of passionate inquiry into this self-evidential research, they learn something about themselves and the world, people that are deeply depressed, people that have You know, tremendous psychological or health problems have been found to be cured or Mm. transformed by the use of these substances. They're talking about microdoses of LSD. They're talking about using marijuana. They do things with Banisteriopsis capai, which is a drug they use in in South America. Mm. It's a snuff. It's a purple vine. Wow. The huasqueros that they call, yeah, that's what they're called, ayahuasca. It's Everyone knows about that mm. now, I think, in the States. Yeah. Anyways, they've done scientific experiments. They've taken, I'd say, a dozen or more Howleys, people from America. They moved them over to South America. They had all these shaman work on them. They went through all kinds of different ceremonies and uh, y- the use of all these psychedelic Uh, you know, pharmaceuticals, and well over half of them were transformed and healed by the use of these experiences. And they came away astoundingly with, you know, changed psychologically and physiologically. Because when you get through, when you go through these experiences it, it changes you emotionally. It changes you, you know, in terms of your phil- philosophy and understanding of the of the world, it gives you a sense of your innate connection to the universe. Does any of this make any sense?
0: Yeah, I think so. I don't have any direct experience with that, but I, I have done some reading and, and- you know, it does seem universally true across the planet, to be honest, you know, when you talk about these such sorts of experiences related to substance and things like that, it's almost textbook. You know what I mean? The the way that, not not, not what you see necessarily, because what you see and what you experience is based on your worldview and your location and, and just what you're, you know, where you're at. But the experience itself by nature seems to be, you know, pretty common, I would almost say.
1: What they've also found is cross-culturally throughout the world,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as individuals use all kinds of various means, various kinds of substances, and various ways to achieve some sort of altered state of consciousness, their experiences are amazingly uniform. What I mean by that is they, they see and experience similar phenomenon, in ayahuasca, for instance, they always see some sort of a feline creature. Mm-hmm. These individuals that go through these experiences talk about seeing the strata or, or the various levels of consciousness from the black to the white. And the white is a gleaming phenomenon. They also then have a mystical experience where they get a guardian spirit. It could be an animal. It could be some sort of a, you know, a super mundane being but they have a conversation and they learn something about themselves and then connect to this divine, super mundane, hmm. deif, sort of helping spirit deity.
0: Mm-hmm. And I could
1: go on and on and on along those same lines. They, they get an experience of flying. They, they, can, they feel that they have power and can sail over the horizons. I mean, on and on and on. This, this happens wherever and whenever these individuals use these. Various uh, means of achieving these altered states of consciousness. and And this isn't just done with necessarily using some sort of a plant, a psychotropic plant, but it's also done. Native people of California as an example, did this by just a, a meditative state of, you know, talking to the mountains. They did it by ingesting red ants that they wrapped an eagle down. They did it by walking through stinging nettles. There's mm-hmm. different ways of examining or creating this, you know, hyper-intensive, extraordinary supernatural experience. I've done this. During the '60s, I did this. I was involved with taking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, various pharmaceuticals, be it uh, LSD or what else, psilocybin, mm-hmm. etc. And so mm-hmm. I, I know what this is all about. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And yeah, it's, it's real. It's, and there's a reason that it has such a tremendous attraction for people.
0: So how does this all relate back to shamanism and the bighorn sheep?
1: Well, it relates in a very odd way. Because all over the world, there is this thing called shamanism. And all over the world, there's this thing called rock art. There seems to be a relationship between a passion and interest and overcoming urge for these medicine persons, these holy men and women, to craft images on stone and in other ways and memorialize their experiences for their descendants. And that's what we're seeing. Mm. We're We're seeing what we call memory palaces. We're seeing things of personal immortality. We're seeing the images crafted by some of the keenest observers or the intermediaries between the world of the divine and the terrestrial. These were the liaisons for the religious specialists, sort of this um, intermediate world, these people that were, were trained and skilled in gathering up information and knowledge from the supernatural world and transferring it to the mundane.
0: And that makes total sense because, I mean, throughout history, including, you know, largely today, religion, access to a God, if you will, or, or various gods has always been, you know, a tightly controlled source of power, so to speak. You know, so having a few individuals that had this connection or had this ability to create and speak for or through something like that seems to be almost a human universal. You know what I mean? Anytime we've invented a religion.
1: <laughs> a human need. There seems to be. Yeah. I mean, what, what is the central sort of, uh, you know, angst ridden thing that all human beings have to deal with? And that's death <laughs> mm-hmm. right yeah. we, we're, yeah. we're, we're probably the only I don't know being that is consciously aware of their own demise, right? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I yeah. guess
1: So these uh, intermediaries were able to sort of pass over that particular realm in the uh, in the world of Baja California, they brought down the rain, but they also brought down the ancestors and were able to... Uh, talk in another language and communicate what the ancestors what the those that have passed had to say back to the native people so you get this other realm so you're this kinship this connection this uh, ethereal thread wow okay and and one and and sort of bridging that particular realm with bighorn sheep some researchers believe that the bighorn sheep was a guardian spirit for the shamans and they were the bringers of rain.
0: Hmm. Okay. That's interesting.
1: One of those things that make you go, hmm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, they would have been desperate for rain back then. That's for sure. Pretty much any time living in that area.
1: Exactly. What is the what is the what is the lifeblood of most people? Well, they got to get rain at the right water. They got to get rain at the right time. Even if they're agriculturalists, they got to get rain to make the plants grow. If the plants don't grow, then the animals don't eat and they starve, anyways. Mm -hmm. If there's too much rain, then there's flooding. So whoever could control the rain would be a, a prominent figure and rather prestigious within the indigenous world. And so having a helping spirit that assisted them in accessing that world would certainly be of great value.
0: You know, different, shamanistic religions around the planet and other types of religions where you've got a figure or a being or somebody who is supposed to do these rituals to produce rain. What a racket, right? Because all they got to do is say, you guys didn't try hard enough. You guys, you guys didn't work hard enough it to pray and to do the things. And then when it finally does rain, they're like, see, look what I said. Look what I said. I I, I made it rain because I told you to work harder. <laughs>
1: Well, I'll, I will uh, divorce myself from oh, that perspective because, because of my uh, position <laughs> dealing, with na- dealing with Native people and their cosmology. You know, it's interesting. I'm one of those rare people that has published probably more on rain shamanism and on uh, weather shamanism and probably almost anyone else in the world. Mm. We did a series of articles on the only known, I think, weather shamans bundle that existed certainly in california but i don't know of any other one that exists sort of in the world per se and so we did a you know a, quite an extensive study on that looking at california weather shamanism and great basin weather shamanism and either weather shamanism around the world studying that to a great extent uh, was was of great mm-hmm. interest in this going back to my our last sort of you know the last little discussion of ghost dance was was actually rather interconnected with this weather shamanism as well. The um, prominent messiahs of the ghost dance were in fact weather shamans. Hmm. So the native people that lived in and about the Coso range were the most prominent weather shamans anywhere in California. And that's what Alfred Kroeber of the ethnologist of California ethnography and indigenous people
0: yeah. had
1: to say. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting. Wow. So I guess when you need water badly <laughs> and you need rain and you need to uh, figure out how to get it, call Ghostbusters, right?
0: <laughs> I guess somebody's got to talk to them. Exactly. All right. Well, we are just about out of time. Any uh, any final thoughts? I mean, we could talk about this for probably the next 10, 15 hours of this podcast and then still have more to talk about. I haven't
1: even, I didn't even get any anything discussed <laughs> about really anything I was going to talk about with respect to bighorn sheep. We completely spent an hour talking about just very, <laughs> very preliminaries scratching the surface about the bighorn sheep and what it means, but- Mm-hmm. I think in, in, the, in the future, I'd like to talk about some of the misunderstandings and misperceptions about bighorn sheep, uh, ceremonialism and cosmology that have been put into the literature. And also about uh, some of the, the interesting ways that both shamanism and the study of bighorn sheep can unify our understanding of the origin
0: and character of rock art in the Far West. How's that? That sounds fantastic. All right. Well, stay tuned to this podcast for those very topics. I'm sure we will get to those at some point in the future. And if you've got any questions, contact information is in the show notes at arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart art forward slash 38 or whatever episode you are looking for. In the meantime, check out all the other great shows that we have on the Archaeology Podcast Network. It's not just a show about rock art. We have Archaeotech, CRM Archaeology, The Archaeology Show, Zoo Archaeology or Archaeo Animals, Indigenous Podcast with Heritage Voices, The Life in Ruins Podcast, lots of different things uh, on the Archaeology Podcast Network. I didn't even get to name them all. So go check those out. And if you want to support us as well, head over to archpodnet.com forward slash members as, as they used to say it's pennies a day to support us and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. keep this yeah, th- going th- thank
1: you <laughs> thank you out there in Archeo podcast land see you on the flip-flop
0: thanks for listening to the rock art podcast with dr alan garfinkel and chris webster You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster.
1: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.